Okay, I'll be learning Shaitan Rajim, Bismillah Rahman Rahim. Wakala Rabbi Shafi Sadri, Wayasri Amri, Wahla Lokutalimisani of Kauli, Bismillahi, Walhamdulillahi, Wasarat Wasalam, Allah Rasulullah, Salis Anbad. So last week we covered the, the Battle of Uhud. Uhud was the second major battle for the Muslims in terms of the Saraya or the Ghazwa, the battles that have occurred. Now, if you remember the Battle of Badr, the Battle of Badr was very concise in terms of what the objective that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has set down, because we know this because Allah mentioned this in the Quran. So the Battle of Badr was between the Muslims and the Kuffar, the open disbelievers. And here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made it very clear that for those people who fought in that war, that their hearts are very sincere, that they only went in. There was no intention for any worldly goods. The intention was purely for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So there was a certain mindset that set them apart from everybody else. And as a result of that, there was no physical booty to gain out of it. There's no wealth to gain out of it. So this is purely for the sake of Allah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, we did this and I made you appoint yourself on that day with the enemy so that we can clearly define what is good and what is evil. Now you can take whatever I just said and apply it today, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes these things happen. Anything that happens that brings these nations together is because Allah has made it happen. So we should be all thinking that there is a wisdom behind why Allah has done this. Now, obviously for us, we feel the pain of the casualties, but I'm going to talk about those casualties and the way that Allah Ta'ala teaches us the way to view this and to see them. When Uhud happened now, this was a very different kind of battle. This battle, Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala made it very clear to the Muslims that the reason why you're going in for this fight, the reason why you're going for the battle is to now separate the Muslims in ranks. You're going to be fighting the Kufar, but I'm going to make something very obvious to you that wasn't obvious before. And that is, I'm going to expose the enemy within. It's very easy to tell who the Kufar are, right? When you're fighting them. But when everyone gathers up and they support the Palestinians and say, we're with you, we're with you, we're with you. And then when everything kicks off, nobody's there. This is the reality of the situation. So Allah SWT is now making it very clear to the Muslims that you have a now situation where there is an enemy within and we're going to make it apparent to you. So when the Muslims went to Uhud, the section, a group of the army, so there was a thousand that were marching to Uhud, 300 turned back. And that was the army, or let's say the tribe of Abdullah ibn Ubay. And Abdullah ibn Ubay was then known to be the mastermind of all the hypocrites. He was the king of the hypocrites. And the people that turned with him were the hypocrites. This was the main reason. Now when the battle happened, things did not turn out in the way that the Muslims expected. The fight in the beginning went in the direction of the Muslims. The archers were protecting the back of the Muslims, making sure that the section of the Quraysh or the Kuffar would not be able to attack the Muslims behind. But when they saw that they were winning, those Muslims, the archers, saw that other Muslims were collecting the worldly goods, then they felt left out. They almost forgot the purpose and the reason, the real reason why they were there. When you enter battle, whenever you do good, whenever you do something for the sake of Allah, remember, there should be no ulterior motive. If you go off and you do charity work, it should never be done because you want to elevate your name. A lot of companies, when they have these charity gigs and you book these tables, so big companies will come. They will, you know, donate a huge amounts of money, millions as a matter of fact. 
But why do they do it? They don't do it out of sincerity. They're doing it because they want to promote their company. They want to show that they're, they're going green. They want to show that they, they have humanitarian values and they're helping the society and the communities. They do it for that reason. And so this happens from a community level down to an individual level. And if you lose sight of what you're really there for, then the dangerous shaitan can very easily turn a good intention into something bad. And this is what Allah mentioned to them in the Quran, that you then gave up your positions because you went for the worldly desires. And those people who go for the worldly, when they make a choice between the akhirah for the sake of Allah and the worldly goods, and you do it in the middle for both, you're going to lose. Because Allah wants for everything to be unconditional to Him. That's the mindset. So the lesson here really comes down to you need to understand whenever you make an intention. And it comes down to the most basic of things. When you, for example, do your salah, okay? And let's say your father calls you, say, do your salah. Let's say you just happen to be at someone's house for dinner. And they say, let's pray salah. Some of you want to pray because some of you are in the habit of praying. Some of you are not regular prayers, right? You don't do that on a regular basis. So you feel obliged to do it because everyone else is watching. It's very easy to fall over the other side. Then it has no value. Okay? It has no value. Some people will do it for other reasons, to get in with different people. There may be a, a senior level manager who's very, very religious. And all of a sudden you want to become his best friend. And, you know, your ulterior motives start to kick in and you start following him in Salah. And it could be at the time of when it comes to Ramadan is a classic one for Tarawiyah. Right? A lot of people will end up going because they don't really have the intention because friends are going and they want to go there, do their salah and then go off for coffees and teas and afters, whatever they want. So there's a very fine line between what you really want and what Allah wants from you. And that will be tested right to the last minute. These guys went all the way to Hud to sacrifice their life. Their intention was all clear. They were going to go into that battle knowing that they were going to lose their life and they were going to sacrifice their families. But at that very last moment, can you believe it? When the Muslims are winning the fight and all the kuffar had left all their booty and they went for the booty, those archers thought, hang on a minute. We came here for the sake of Allah and all of a sudden the intention changed. No, no, we want some of that. As a result of that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala taught them a lesson and there were huge casualties. In the Battle of Hud, 70 Muslims were martyred. Only 22 were killed from the Kufar side. And it was clearly from a physical reality in our real world, it is a decisive win for the Kufar, there's no doubt. But from a spiritual aspect, there is a win for us, without a doubt. And in that, Muhammad was very upset. He had lost his uncle, Hazrat Hamza, whose body was completely mutilated to the extent that the sister of Hazrat Hamza, when the battle was over, they started to come to see what was the news of the battle. And when she came, <clears throat> Muhammad said to her son, Zubair al-Awam, that go to your mother and say to her not to come to see Hamza's body. Because the body has been mutilated now, completely mutilated. So Zubair went to his mum and said to him, you can't go, you can't go. He said, why? Because the Prophet has ordered that you don't go because of the state of his body. She said, I know what to expect. I'll be fine. I'm not going to lose myself. Yeah, let me go and let me give my du'as. So he went back and told the Prophet Salam. Prophet said, okay, bring her. And she came and she saw her brother completely mutilated. He wasn't the only one. So she made the du'a, inna lillahi wa raja'oon. And then, you know, she had sabr and she had confidence that, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would take. And we'll talk about 
how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala responded to these Muslims in regard to these martyrs. And there was many other Muslims that were mutilated in that battle. The Quraysh were so angry, they wanted to teach them a lesson. And so after this event, remember that Allah had revealed for this particular battle, He said, look, you inflict punishment, then do so in a like manner that you were punished. But if you are patient, it is indeed better for those who are patient. When Muhammad saw that his uncle had been mutilated, he became so angry. And look at the, the Prophet's response. He saw his uncle mutilated, body cut up, to the point that him tried to eat the liver. And she threw up, she couldn't eat it. But she made necklaces out of his body parts. So when the Prophet saw this, as an insan, he reacted. He said, as a result of this, I will mutilate 30 of them. And that's when Allah says, if you inflict punishment to them, then do so in a like manner that they did to you. Yeah, eye for an eye. They did one person, you're saying 30. This is not right. And then he went on to say, but, O Muhammad, if you are patient, it is indeed better for those who are patient. The Prophet knows when Allah says it is better, that better isn't like you'll feel all right. That better means Allah is going to give you something huge. He's going to turn your life around. Not just in this dunya, in the akhirah. So the Prophet already knows that the bargain that Allah has put forward is saying, if you're patient for this, I will make things better. I'll bring a hundred of him back to your life. I will reunite him with you and you'll be perfect. If you're patient, you'll get better. If you don't, then you take what you want from this dunya. But that's it. You've got your bit. I've nothing, I've got nothing else to offer. That's when the Prophet said, then to mutilate anyone is forbidden. So we know in the ruling of Islam and people who accuse the Muslims of barbarous acts, we know from our religion this is forbidden. This is forbidden. So be very careful with the news that you hear about what people say about them. And Jibreel came to the Prophet Muhammad in regarding to Hamza because it was really sad for the Prophet It was really sad about this because Hazrat Hamza in Medina, he's an outsider. So it's not like your community. Imagine in Slough that there's a guy that comes from, I don't know, Malaysia. And he lives in Slough. We do a lot of these ghusls. So we get called up all the time saying, can you come and do ghusl for such and such brother? He has no family. He has no one. Can you do his ghusl? So we come and do his ghusl. And the saddest thing is when you do his janazah, like maybe two or three or four people will turn up who just happen to be bypassers coming in to read salah. And they'll just do the janazah. Okay? And it's sad when that situation happens. So here, you can see has, that people don't have anyone. Hamza was an outsider. No one was there. So when the 22 had died, and some of them were the you know, people from Medina, many of the women, the community, they cried for them. But no one knew Hamza. So the Prophet ﷺ sat there being sad. And the Sahabi noticed that the Prophet ﷺ was upset. And they ordered their women to cry for Hamza. Because he thought that, look, Hamza's got nobody. You understand? So Jibreel came to Muhammad and he told Muhammad that Hamza's name is written in the seven heavens. In the words written, Hamza, the son of Abdul Muttalib, the lion of Allah and the lion of his messenger. This is written in heaven, don't worry. Doesn't matter if the world forgets, but Allah has written his name in the highest level in paradise. During that time, the Prophet Muhammad he started to bury many of the Muslims. The Muslims were tired, so they would dig the graves and they would put sometimes two or three people in the same grave because the Prophet didn't want to overwhelm them. Imagine digging 70 graves. It's very, very tiring for these Muslims. They were injured, so they would dig one big, large trench and they would put the bodies in. Then they asked the Prophet who should we bury first? And his response was, bury the one with the most knowledge of Quran first. 
bury the one with the most knowledge of Quran first. And here already we talked about that the Prophet and Allah, they differentiate us in ranks. This is why it's so imperative that in this dunya, don't underestimate the small things. Don't think, okay, I need to do the big things to be, you know, to, to get Allah's favor. Allah will take the smallest things that you do, smiling at another Muslim, checking up another Muslim. All of these will build your ranking up. And that is what you need. Because on the day of judgment, the higher ranking is, the very lowest ranking will take you out of the hell. So you need to at least get to that threshold. You want to be able to do enough things that gets you out of that threshold first. Then after that, build a ranking so you can move up the, uh, up the classifications in, in paradise. So the Prophet used to make these du'as and they were said that the Prophet continuously after the Battle of Hud, for eight years onwards, he would continuously make du'as and he would always do these khutbahs in such a manner that the Sahabi used to say he used to talk like he's still giving his goodbyes to them eight years afterwards, like he's still saying goodbye to them, like they're still fresh. Another thing that used to happen was a lot of the family members that came to collect the bodies of the deceased who died as martyrs, they collect their bodies and they were going back. And Hazrat Aisha was narrating that they were somewhere very close to Uhud and they want to know what was the latest news. And they saw one of the Muslim women come back and she was sitting on a camel between two loads. And what that basically meant, there was a body in front of her and a body behind her. It was actually one Muslim Sahabi, a female Sahabi. Her whole family had been killed in the battle, whole family. But she didn't care. She goes, they all died as martyred. All I wanted to make sure was that Prophet Muhammad was still alive and he's still with us. And it was very important for them, given that the situation for them was very difficult. They were not at that point where Islam had been established. So that was key for them. The Prophet Muhammad when he gave his condolences, he would go to these houses, give his condolences. So he went to see the wife of Musa ibn Amir. Now, I mentioned Musa ibn Amir. This was a standard bearer. He was the Sahabi that went into the battle holding the flag. And they chopped one arm off because at the time when they all thought that the Prophet Muhammad had been killed in the Battle of Hud, he carried on fighting. He said, why are you still sitting there? If your Prophet is dead and he's gone, don't you want to join him? Let's go. And others shouted out, if your Prophet might be dead, but Allah is still alive. So he carried on forcing the fighters forward. It was hard because some of these Sahabi, people like Hazrat Hamza, people like Musa ibn Umair, these are veterans, they're from Makkah. They were already trained 15 years or 13 years in Islam. They understood where the people in Medina, they weren't quite there yet. They weren't quite there yet. So they were felt deflated. They didn't want to pick up the sword. They didn't want to fight. But Musab bin Amir said, we've got to go all the way to the end. And they cut his left arm, their right arm. He tried to hold the standard bearer between his stubs of his hands. And he dropped and they stabbed him 80 times. And then Musab bin Amir, if you remember who he was, he was a Sahabi that the Prophet Muhammad sent to Medina. When they were being persecuted in Makkah, towards the end of that period in Makkah, Muhammad said, you go to Medina and you do the dawah there. And Musab ibn Amir, just to give you a contrast, in 13 years, the Prophet Muhammad converted only roughly about 80 people and he was a prophet. And Musab ibn Amir went to Medina for three years and converted virtually the whole of the Arab tribes. There wasn't one household that didn't hear about Islam in Medina, but there was at least one member in every household that become Muslim. And he had prepared Medina for Muhammad and he was highly rated. And he was the same man, Musa ibn Umair, was the one who was a super rich kid. 
He was the one who had millions. His mother was a widow. All the money was left to her from her husband. He wore the most expensive clothes, the most expensive perfume. And only when he came across Muhammad in Makkah, his heart fell for Islam. And the people of the Quraysh, the leaders, went to his mother and said, do you know that your son has become Muslim? He tried to keep it quiet. When he came back home, his mother said to him, I hear that you become Muslim. Is this true, Musab? And he said, yes, it is. I'm not going to hide it. She goes, then if you don't leave Islam, if you don't come back to our ways, then I will take away your money, your clothing, your perfumes, everything. He goes, take it all. I don't need it because I have found the haq and the truth. And us, we're still battling between the dunya and the akhirah. Their conviction is you have to understand the psychology. What is it that turned them away from the dunya that we are unable to do the same? And it's very simple because you don't know anything. You don't study. You don't read. And then you say, oh, why does Allah make it easy for me? You, what have you done to deserve it? How many people, how many times do people read Quran at night? We can't motivate ourselves. We can't pick up a simple book and say, I'm going to read this or I'm going to read an ayah of the Quran and understand it. That's the problem, right? That's why you're not going to change. That's why nothing will ever make any difference to you. And when the time will come, you will stand the day of judgment. You say, Ya Allah, but I'm a Muslim. And Allah will say, are you kidding me? Let me replay back your whole life. What's this real? And you'll say, remember you did this, you did this, you did this. It came for Salah, you walked away. Your father called you, you ran out. It came for Ramadan, you hid away, you ate. It came for Jummah at work and you went with your boss because he thought you were going to get promotion and you gave up Allah on that basis. What more proof do you want? Between me and the dunya, who did you choose? Every single time. So you have to think to yourself, why do we think we're deserving of this? And then you've got to compare yourself in the same lifetime, in the same point in time. We're sitting here still struggling to pray and you've got Muslims in Palestine sacrificing. They've got ways out. They've got a way out. Every time they interviewed them, they said, we will not leave our land. We will die fighting for this land for the sake of Allah SWT. And we can't even pray for Allah SWT. That's a contrast different. And it's all about mindset. It is all about mindset. So these people, their mindset was completely different and they were very powerful. Musab bin Amir, he led them forward, but he died as a martyr there. So people tried to go, they tried to pick up their bodies. The Prophet went to see their family and he said to her, Inna lillahi wa Condolences for who? He said, your brother passed away. Then he said, condolences again. She goes, for who? He said, your father passed away. Then he said, condolence again. She said, who? He said, your husband. Then she cried. And the Prophet said, a woman will always have a special place for her husband that nobody can replace. And that's why they will respond in that way. Always. So when they tried to take the bodies, the Prophet ordered the Sahabi, tell the women, bring the bodies back because every martyr should be buried where they died alongside their brothers. And take away their leather and their steel, but leave them in their clothes with blood. Because on the day of judgment, the Prophet stood up in the khutbah. He said, I can see now where I'm standing, the holder is shown to me. A holder on the day of judgment is a place where it's, like a, it's almost like a fountain, a river. He said, there, all of the believers will come to assemble. Just imagine on that day, right? On that day, if there's million, billions of people in this world, and we're going to be raised, and people are going to be suffering. People are going to be in anxiety attack. 
people are going to be in depression to the point that ayahs talk about that people will cry to the extent the tears that they will have will be so much that ships can sail on it because Allah will remove all the laws of the universe so that's how much tears will come out of panic tears and sweat so the only people that will have relief because remember the worst thing that any human being can ascertain is not physical punishment is regret because when regret hits you, you always think, oh my God, that's the worst punishment. I could have changed this situation. I could have done this. I could have done that. And when you know that the day judgment is going to happen, everyone knows that is the beginning with no end. So when I go to hell, it's the beginning and there'll be no end. I go to paradise, beginning and there's no end. So the only relief will be, the Prophet says, they will come to me at the holder. These people will be recognized with their blood on their clothes and the smell of musk from that blood. This is the power of being a martyr. So the people used to ask the Prophet Muhammad about these martyrs. Okay, there was, two, there was two things that happened. Naturally, you know, when somebody passes away very close to you, you always ask, don't you? Even if you know, you always ask, what happens? There's this thing called the, the barzakh, they go there. What happens in the barzakh? Are they placed in somewhere good? Are they being punished? Then what happens in the day? Everyone's curious. Even if we know, we want to know. We want to feel good about them, right? We don't want to hear something bad. So we always ask these questions. Then those who passed, those who died, the shaheed that died, imagine in Palestine that those young lads or those fathers who didn't get to see their daughters or their wives or their mothers and, their father, and all of a sudden they passed away. When they die as a martyr, they will say to Allah, we're concerned about our loved ones. Can you let them know that we're okay? Because they're going to be forever thinking, because shaitan can come to us, even to the Muslims and say, they're dead. Is there really a heaven and a hell? Huh? What if Islam was wrong? What if Islam was wrong and the Hindus are right? Na'udhu billah. Shaitan can come and put that little doubt in your mind. And so the Prophet ﷺ, he said, when your brothers were struck down at a hood, God placed their spirits in the crops of green birds and they would go down to the rivers of paradise and feed off the fruits there. Then they would retire up back to a golden chandelier hung up in the shade of the throne of Allah, enjoying their food, drinking and lodgings. And they asked, who can tell our brothers, our families about us? Because we're loving it here. Who would tell them this news so that they will not shirk in the battle? So not even just our families, but the next people who go into battle, the next people who will fight, that they will not hinder, they will not shirk, they will not back off. That when they know what's happened to us, they're like, let's go for it. Because that death and that pain is a, a second. You won't even feel it for the believer. In your dunya, when you see them suffering, you think they're suffering. But Allah doesn't make them suffer. Allah never makes the believers suffer. Right? It's very quick. And then, within a second, they're in some different place. So they said, who will tell them this information so that our brothers will not shirk in the battle and nor be reluctant in warfare? And Allah then replied in the Quran, I will inform them about you. My job. Allah said to them, because they were talking in paradise, right? And they're saying, who would? And Allah says, I will inform them about you. And therefore the ayah of the Quran revealed to the Muslims. And Allah says, 
do not consider those killed in God's cause to be dead, but alive. They are being provided for by their Lord. And that's the one that you keep hearing. Do not say they are dead. They are with Allah and Allah is providing for them. And so the question that people ask is, so are they in heaven? No. Nobody can enter paradise except for the Prophet first and then everybody enters. What Allah has blessed these martyrs with, that they're in these birds and they can fly around, around in heaven. They can't touch base into paradise. They can pick from it, eat from it, and then they fly back out into the, under the throne of Allah. You see, it's only until the day judgment happens, then Allah, then the Prophet Allah will permit the Prophet he will enter, and then all the believers will enter in their original forms. That's the beauty. So here is a very profound thing. Allah is saying, and it's not just for the martyrs, it's for everyone. If you're a true believer, if you sacrifice your life for the sake of Allah, you sacrifice the dunya and you chose Allah, don't fear. Because when you cross that line, Allah will give you everything. But what stops us is the unknown. The worst thing a man can ever suffer from is the unknown. Because when you don't know, you don't know what to expect and you don't know how to react and your emotion doesn't know what to do and your brain can't make pathways on how to react. This is why having knowledge of Islam is imperative because Allah answered this. How would you know this if you didn't read the Quran? How would you know what happens afterwards if you don't read the Quran? So many people, they say, I don't know how to strengthen my Iman. I don't know how to think about the Akhirah. Well, how would you if you don't learn? How would you if you don't read the Quran? How would you if you don't study the Seerah? How would you if you don't look at the Hadith and the messages that the Prophet Muhammad has given you? And that's the key thing that people are missing out on. So now, the Prophet Muhammad as far as the Kuffar are concerned, all 22 had been killed. There was only one execution that the Prophet performed. If you remember last week, I said to you, there was a man by the name of Abu Azza al-Jumma. This was the man that went to the Battle of Badr, and then he was caught as a POW, and he said to the Prophet I don't have any money to ransom myself, but I have daughters. And Muhammad had such a soft heart. He pitied the man and he said, okay, I'll let you go back because you're the breadwinner in your home. You only have daughters. And in this, in this society, daughters have no value. Females have no value. So I'll, I'll let you go. But under the condition, you never ever come back and join the Quraysh army against us again. So in the Battle of Hud, in the beginning, Abu Sufyan approached him and said, we need you. And I will pay you. We need your poetry to motivate them. And if anything happens to you, I will sponsor your daughters. I will take, bring them up like my own. And so he did join and he got caught. And when he did get caught, the Prophet ﷺ said, I did warn you. And he was the only execution that happened. There are silver linings in this battle. And the silver linings I mentioned was not material benefits. The material benefits was lost. They didn't receive any booty. The Muslims had lost loved ones. The Prophet ﷺ lost very close companions. This was, like I said, this is Allah SWT made it very clear. In the first battle between the Muslims and the Kuffar in the Battle of Badr, Allah said, so Allah may separate the evil and the good. For the Battle of Hud, Allah SWT said, this is to expose the hypocrites, the enemy within. And Allah will not leave the believers in the condition you were in until he distinguished the good from the evil. And so that what you suffered on that day, or Hud, what you suffered, on that day, 
the two armies were met by Allah's will so that he may distinguish the believers and expose the munafiq, the hypocrites. That was very clear. You know, Abdullah ibn Abay, this guy, the hypocrites, when they went for battle, he was the one that turned the people away. He didn't want to fight. He didn't want to fight. He wanted to lose his life. And he made an excuse and said, if we knew that there was going to be a fight, we would have turned up. When the Prophet ﷺ, when he came to, when he came to Medina afterwards, the Prophet used to come to the masjid, all the Muslims would come in Medina, and the Prophet ﷺ would make a khutbah. Abdullah bin Ubay was such a nasty little politician. Because he was a very senior uh, figure in the community, because he used to be, um, he was going to be elected as a leader before the Prophet ﷺ came. He wanted to stay close to the Prophet ﷺ so that he could at some point think or believe that either the Quraysh at some point will kill him, the Jews will kill him, or our own people will kill him. And until that happens, I don't want to expose my hand as that I'm the enemy because if he succeeds, I will gain the benefit and the money. So every time the Prophet ﷺ used to come, Abdullah ibn Abay used to stand up and say, Stand up, everyone, round of applause, here's our Prophet. Let's love him and give respect. He would show. He would basically kiss up to the Prophet. After the Battle of Hud, every time he used to do that, the Muslims who stand around him, sit around him, used to pull him down. He used to say, get down, you dirty hypocrite. Now he's exposed. How dare you? You have no right after what you've done. And this upset him. So he climbed over everyone's head to get out the masjid. When he came out the, the mosque, he met some ansar. They said, where are you going? He says, I've been abused and treated like this by these Muslims. He said, go in, we'll tell the Prophet. And the Prophet will ask them to, to apologize to you. He goes, no, I don't need any of them. They can give me nothing. So Allah then exposed the hypocrisy even more. Okay? The Prophet Muhammad received a dream in regarding to the Battle of Hud and what was going to happen. And this was very important because after such a blow for the Muslims, they needed to see some sort of light at the end of the tunnel. They don't always wait for the Prophet to give them some sort of revelation or indication. We know that Prophet's dreams are revelation. And the Prophet Muhammad said, I saw a dream and I struck my sword. I had a sword and I struck it, but my sword broke. This is what afflicted the Muslims at Hud. The Muslims, they broke. Then I hit the sword again and it became stronger. Like it was never this strong before. And this was the victory that Allah will give to the Muslims and the coming together of the believers, that more people will join us. So here the Prophet ﷺ, afterwards the indication was this is Fatah Makkah, when they took Makkah. So they knew that this is the one lesson, this wasn't the beginning of the end for them, this is the beginning of the success for them. The mentality started to change for the Muslims, slowly. After this battle, what was the mentality of the Bedouins and the tribes around them? When you know that you've been hit hard, all the other Arab tribes in Najd, so if you take Arabia and you divide it in half, everything on the west coast where Makkah and Medina is, is Hijaz. And the main desert area is called Najd. And Najd has the vast majority of the tribes. And they're Bedouins. They're vagabonds. They're the ones who raid the caravans because they don't have the city life. They don't have the trade access. So these tribes are a bit more if you want to call it backwards, a bit more of a rough style. So Prophet Muhammad when the Hud battle occurred and they lost this battle, 
A lot of these tribes became very brave and thought, while the Muslims are down, let's see if we can take them out now. So many different tribes, they started coming back and hitting on the Prophet Muhammad and hitting on the Muslims. And what was really sad about this, after you've taken such a big blow like a hood, now you've got people coming to attack you. The Prophet sent one of his very close companions, Abu Salama, to go on a mission because news came out that there was a tribe getting ready to attack them. They were coming from all over the place, literally. He was getting scouts coming back saying they're coming from the north, they're coming from the south, they're coming from the west. So the Prophet constantly sending out scouts, getting information. So he sent Abu Salama. Abu Salama went there, caught them off guard. They ran, took all the booty, returned back. But there was a few scuffles. In that, he had received an injury. That injury caused an infection in his arm or his leg. When he came back, four months after that event, Abu Salama passed away. Abu Salama, his wife was Umm Salama. These were the first two that left Makkah to go to Medina, the first people that migrated. This was a story when all three of them were split up. The father, the mother, and the son had been split up because the Quraysh divided them Okay, for two years. And she suffered because her husband was in Medina. Her son was taken by the tribe, which was from the father's side. And her tribe captured her and held her prisoner. So for two years, she could not see her husband or her uh, son. And that was in itself its torture. I mean, how many families have been separated now as a result of this war? So unfortunately for Umm Salama, her husband passed away. Umm Salama, Salama comes from a very prestigious lineage. And that was equivalent to people wanting to marry a woman who's got status, who's got money, who's got wealth and so forth. But the Prophet Muhammad encouraged the Sahabi that do not leave women widowed. Do not leave them widowed because in those days, if you're a woman and you're widowed, you have no clout. There's no protection for you by law, by community or anything because the customs of the old ways were still ripe. So the Prophet knew that they couldn't earn for themselves and he would encourage the Sahabi, go and marry these widowed. So Abu Bakr Siddiq himself went to Umm Salama and he wanted to marry her because she's from a high prestigious family and the fact that that was uh, Abu Salama's wife. So he went to her, she refused him. Umar bin Khattab went and proposed marriage, she refused him. Then the Prophet Muhammad he went himself. He went himself and proposed. She was a little bit hesitant and she said to the Prophet Muhammad if you marry me, I have three issues. He says, what are those issues? Number one, I'm a very jealous woman. You have many wives. Number two, I have many children, okay? Abu Salama has left, I have children as well. And number three, I'm old. What use would I be? The Prophet said, for the first one, your jealousy, I will make a specific and a special dua for you to Allah to remove your jealousy. Number two, as far as your children are concerned, your children are my children and they will have the same respect and care. And number three, as far as when it comes to age, what afflicts you has afflicted me. I'm old as well. So the Prophet Muhammad when he proposed and answered his question, she then married the Prophet Um Salama, she narrated in the hadith, and it's very beautiful, because actually Um Salama and Abu Salama were very much in love. They were proper lovebirds, right? Really in love. And they used to always talk together, and they made a little deal. Abu Salama used to say to his wife, if anything happens to me and I die, we'll never get married. No, 
His wife said, if, if I die, you won't get married again. And if you die, I will never get married again. We will, I will always be with you. And that is because of the fact that there was that hadith that said, whoever you last marry is the one that you enter in Jannah. But then one day, Abu Salama, after his discussion, came back and saw his wife. He says, I was with the Prophet Muhammad And he said to me that whenever a person is afflicted with calamity and makes the following dua, and that is, Allah will replace it with something better. And that dua was, O oh Allah, to Allah we belong and to Allah we will return. Right? You know this one. And he went on to say in the dua, O oh Allah, recompense me for my patience. Provide me something better for my patience in my calamity and replace it with that which is better. So when she found out that her husband died, that's the dua she read. And she goes, little did I know that he was going to replace you with the Prophet Muhammad And that is one of the most beautiful things, you know, when it comes to how the Muslims behave and react to these issues. One of the major events, the, the problems don't stop coming for the Prophet The problems don't stop coming. One of the major disasters for the Prophet on top of this, Allah inflicted the Muslims with a greater test. There was a story and it's called the massacre of Bir Ma'una. So Bir means the well of Ma'una. And what happened in this event was there was a character by the name of Amr bin Tufail. If you remember in Makkah, when the Prophet used to go to all the camps, you know when it was the Hajj season and he used to go to all the camps and give give them da'wah and said, give me protection. He went to this one camp and he said to them, if you give me protection, it will allow me to spread the message of Islam and Allah will bless you and Allah will provide you with goodness, right? In this dunya and akhirah. This man said to him, okay, he realized there's something special about this man, Muhammad. This was in Makkah at the time. And he said to his other tribal leaders, I want to make a deal with him because this man will succeed because he's got something, this prophethood. So he said to Muhammad he said, we will support you, but after you pass away, after you die, who will you give the power to? He says, the power will go to where Allah wishes it to go to. He goes, no. He goes, I will back you up. If you promise that the power comes to me, I will then control everyone. And the Prophet said, no, the power will only go to where Allah wishes it. And he said to Muhammad so let me get this straight. You want me and my tribe to stick our necks out for you and die for you at the end of it, not to even know that we will get anything out of this. That's when he started to insult the Prophet and he said, get out of here. So when the Prophet jumped on the camel to leave, he took a stick and he hit the camel so hard that threw the Prophet off. And the Prophet hurt himself, suffered from concussion. And it was for one woman, a Muslim, from that tribe who then attacked them and they started having a fight and a scuffle. Well, this is the same character, Amr bin Tafail. This man by the name of Abu al-Bara from his tribe came from Najd, came to see the Prophet started engaging with him. The Prophet ﷺ gave da'wah to him. He was very impressed with Islam. He said, this is brilliant. And Muhammad ﷺ was hoping that he would embrace Islam. He goes, it's too early for me to make a commitment like this. I can't do that. Let me go back and talk to my people. But could you send some people with me so that they can propagate and give da'wah to my community? Now, being from Najat and being a very big tribe, he thought, okay, I'll send my best. You know who the Al-Sufa was? The first university 
in Medina, and these are people who are completely dedicated to nothing but Islam. And Abu Huraira was one of them. Hundred percent. That's why all the hadiths come from Abu Huraira, Abu Huraira, Abu Huraira. These people, they didn't work. They just dedicate all their life to studying Islam. And the Al Sufa is because of them is what we know about Islam. Other Sahabi, they worked. Abu Huraira said we were so poor because we couldn't work. We dedicated our life. We would stay live in the masjid. And we will sleep there and we'll give dawah all day and night. We'll walk with the Prophet, we'll travel with him, we'll record hadith, we'll record it from other people, and we would teach Islam. He said, Abu Huraira in a hadith said, I was so hungry once and we didn't like asking. He said, I used to walk with the companion in the evening when he's going home just to ask him questions about, so what about this subject and what about that subject? And he said, I knew more than he did. But the reason I asked his question so that by the time he got to the house, he would invite me in to eat because I was starving. That was their dedication. So every time that Muhammad used to receive the booty, you know that one-fifth we talked about that he received? Where do you think that one-fifth went? Part of that went to feed the al-Sufa. So the Prophet Muhammad sent 70 of them. He sent 70 of them. They went and they got to this place, to Bir Ma'muna. When they arrived here, they sent one of the messengers, right? They sent one of the messengers, a Muslim by the name of Harab ibn Milhan. They said, take this letter, go to the tribe and tell them we come in peace and we're here just to teach Islam. When Haram ibn Milhan walked in, Amr bin Tufail, the moment he opened his mouth and he knew that he was from, the, from Muhammad, he ordered his tribe, he, one of his soldiers, he gave an eye contact and he said, kill him immediately. He did something so treacherous, no tribe, even the biggest enemies will not do that. There's an unwritten law, right? In these tribes, if you send a messenger, you cannot touch him. He has amnesty. He has free passage. You listen to his message, you send him back. He was so treacherous, he said, kill him. And they stabbed him and the spear came out the other side. When they killed him, immediately, Amr bin Tufel, he said, right, gather the other tribes. Let's go and let's kill the rest of them. Some of the chieftains said, are you mad? Are you crazy what you've done? You killed a messenger. And he's from this man, Muhammad. He came in peace. You know what you started. So some of them didn't even join him. He didn't care. Two other tribes came. He gathered up 500 men. They got to Bir Ma'una. The, the Sahabi were there. They realized something wasn't right. They came in weapons. The, the Muslims, they said, quickly scarp up to the mountain. They're coming to attack us. And they came 500 against 70. They fired, they fired. And these Muslims, they tried to fight back. And they fought and they fought as much as they could until... Every one of them were killed. They killed pretty much everyone from the Al-Sufa, completely wiped them out. And this was an absolute disaster. Three of them survived, one by the name of Khab ibn Zayd. Khab ibn Zayd, when they were killing all of those bodies, he was trapped underneath the bodies of the Muslims. So they thought that he was dead. And eventually he escaped. Another Sahabi by the name of Amr ibn Umayyah, and the other one was Al-Mundir ibn Muhammad. Two of them, they got caught. Two of them, they got caught. So Al-Bundir said, if all of my other companions have been killed, I'm not, I'm not going to be taken as a prisoner. I'm going to fight them. And he fought and he got killed. Amr got captured and they said to Amr, we're not going to kill you. You're going to go back and send a message to your leader about what we've done to you and your, and your people. So Amr, you imagine his close companions, all these Sahabis been killed. He travels back to Medina. Story doesn't end there. As he's traveling back on his way to Medina, he sees that there are two 
men, right, camped. His journey's long. Two people that camped and they're sitting there. Sometimes you can, if you want, you can join them because he's distraught. He's been beaten. He's injured. He's got no food. He's got nothing. He sees them. He says, can I join you? They say, yeah, yeah, of course. Come sit with us. And they sat with them. As they were talking, he realized that these two were for the same tribe as Amr bin Tafail. And because he lost the plot, because mentally he was scarred because of what happened, he didn't think twice. He attacked and killed them both. Then when he tried to take from their pockets, he found a letter that the Prophet Muhammad wrote regarding these two, that they are under the Prophet's protection. So he now killed two people from the tribe of Amr bin Tafail that were under the protection of the Prophet. He went back, he told the Prophet Muhammad that the Sufa had been killed, all 70 of them, and these two as well, I killed them. This was a disaster for the Prophet Muhammad This was a massive disaster. And on the same day, on the same day, news came out, another 10 Sahabi had been murdered. And inshallah, we'll carry on that next week.